This letter was written from a Roman prison by the Apostle Paul to a group of Gentile Christ followers okay, in the ancient city of Colossae. Oh, what happened was this. What happened was there was a group of people started to infiltrate the church as happens and they were beginning to remix and they were going to, they were beginning to edit who Jesus is. So Paul is alarmed and has to combat that re-editing and mixing up, remixing who Jesus is. Uh, we can do the same thing today. Oh, what can happen today is this. Let me translate it this way. People can say, well, you know what? I'm a Christ follower. I'm like saved. No, I'm satisfied here. And uh, But I need more than just that. I need Jesus plus, fill in the blank, the new relationship, the new boyfriend, the new girlfriend. I need Jesus plus the new, you know, financial portfolio. I need Jesus plus the new job, the new promotion. I need Jesus plus... Excellent children with straight teeth and straight A's and are perfect, you know. So as if Jesus is not enough. And so we're in a series entitled, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And sometimes what you need, need in your, your experience is not the complexities of the Christian faith. You need the simplicities of the Christian faith. And so we're getting back to the simplicity because, see, Jesus is enough. A relationship with Jesus is enough. See, he's the one that can give you inner peace and satisfaction and purpose and meaning, and he is enough. So that has been the message here, that Jesus is not just some historical figure here. He's not just some 33-year-old podunk from Nazareth. He is indeed the Savior of the world. And uh, I know we're not just to respond to him at opportune times when it's convenient for us. Jesus said, I am the God of heaven. I'm the bread of life. I'm the true vine here. I fashioned you and I made you, you know, in my image. And the only way that your life works is when it is tethered closely to me. And this has been the message here. And so in Colossians, remember, we're reviewing. We've, we reviewed a few lessons here. The put off and the put on. You remember that, I hope. Okay, so I'll review that. The old sinful lifestyle, the old pattern, the old habits, the old way of life. And we learned about two weeks ago that you'll get the peace of God. That God will dwell in your hearts by faith. He'll be, His word will dwell in us. And we've been reminded of this. We've been reminded that uh, our minds are dark and our hearts can be hardened. Uh, before we know God, we can have no sense of shame there. We can be pursuing lustful pleasures and uh, we can be full of greed and and practice, you know, all kinds of craziness there. And so, and this is not new for the people. The people live in a fast town of Colossae. They've seen that and heard that. What happens in Colossae stays in Colossae. And so, that was funny, and you didn't get it, but you'll get it on the way home. And so, on the screen, so you know, uh, we're, we were apart from Jesus. We were lost. We were dead in our sins. Okay, we had no spiritual pulse, no relationship with God. We were enslaved by desire. This is, he says, this is who you were. You were excluded from God. You were without hope. You were spiritual orphans. And then after all that, 
you found Jesus and you became the church. And he says, so you got to throw off all, all of that. You got to throw off the old here. And you realize that you were not created for that. That's not who God made you to be. That was the old life. Okay. And where it leads you, it's nowhere good is what Paul was saying there. So now what is happening in the church then and now? Is they're looking back, they're looking at their former lifestyle, you know, and they're staring at it and they're being attracted by it and they're being a little bit enamored by it. But then they're got they're supposed to put on this new man here in Christ, this new image. And he says, but that isn't who you were in Christ. Jesus is the new way. He's the new day here. He's not just king of the Jews. He's king of the new. He's king of all things new here. And when you became a Christ follower, Everything in Christ was, the old things are passed away. It says, look, you've got a new language. You have a new power. You have a new purpose. You have a new passion. You have a new kingdom. All of it is new. And when you believed in Jesus, now you're blessed. Now you're connected to God. Now you're adopted. Now you're loved as God's child. You're chosen and you're wanted and you're included and you're forgiven and rescued. You're alive in Christ and you heard you're his masterpiece. So we need to remember who we are. It's like, it's like changing your own, your old clothing. How many of you got some old stuff in the closet? Get them up. Okay. You got old stuff in the closet there. So I brought something from the closet. I'm going to show you something old from my closet. And if you encourage me, perhaps I'll do it. Thank you. Thank you. And so I was, you know, when I was a young lad, I was very into sports. Sports, sports, and more sports. Football, baseball, basketball, track, wrestling, rugby, you name it. I, I was just into it all the time, okay? So when I was in school, I just happened to find something in my closet here. I'm going to pull out something that is old from high school. And uh, uh, perhaps you'll notice it still fits. And just in case I forget... Just in case I forget my name, my name is right there, Rod Collins, and all the stuff they give you, you know, for the sports, a lot of it's fallen off. But uh, anyway, imagine this. You enjoying this this morning? Are you enjoying this? I hope you're enjoying this, because I'm making an idiot out of myself to make the point. <laughs> so imagine you come to church, okay? And, I, and you see me, and every day you come in, I've got my Letterman's jacket on. And you're like every Sunday, like the guy, does he, does he sleep in his jacket? Is he ever going to take the thing off, you know? And then you come over to my house and say, hey, come here, I just want to show you something. Come on in the back of the closet, I just want to show you. And I pull out the jacket and go, look, this is my letterman's jacket, you know? You'd be like, Rod, you're like an idiot. Like, you're, like, my wife would be, Rod, you're ridiculous. And so, anyway, but you know what? Uh, the, the old life can be a little bit like this, you know? It still kind of fits. Kind of feels good, you know, it's comfortable and all, you know, and I uh, got a lot of, got a lot of memories, you know, from it, good old times, you know, from the old life here. And so, but Paul said to take off the old man and put on the new man. And so the idea of spiritual transformation then is married with this idea of putting off and putting on. And so, uh, so I want to talk about this a little bit here. So I'm going to take this off for a moment and I'm going to illustrate Another another jacket here. I'm going to illustrate another jacket that uh, we got here. Um, so I'm going to illustrate another jacket here. This is going to represent 
Things are a little tight here. This is the best the, uh, they could do here, you know. So we got this the thrift store, you know, end of the year budget. You know, you know what I'm talking about. So anyway, this is the best they could do. But so uh, anyway, so you have this new life here, okay? You have this new life. You're clothed in Christ, okay? And this new life represents salvation. This represents that I am in Christ, okay? I'm in Christ, baby. I'm in Christ, baby. All right? So I am in Christ now. The old things, the Bible says, are passed away. Okay, the old things are passed away. And all things become new in Christ here, okay? And so the old habits, the old man, the old ways, the old patterns, all the old things have been done away and all things become new in Christ here. And so now God by his spirit is renewing us, is renewing us, okay? Now I have a new nature, now I have Jesus' nature, Jesus' values that are now I'm building into my life here. Okay, and He renews us, He transforms us, okay, into the image of God. And so this is how it works here. And so now this is what I know to be true. When we're in Christ, many of us, what we want is we want immediate, instantaneous change. And we think that this is going to happen like immediately. And I just have to tell you, that for me personally, I've been on this journey now for a long time, for decades and decades. And you know what? I'm still trying to figure it out. So little by little, I'm figuring out, you know, I'm chasing after him. And I'm following him there. And, I, and I'm wanting to live this life. But the reality is that the spiritual growth, you know, uh, is slow. And we live in a culture, don't we? Tell me if this isn't true. We live in a culture, we want everything right now. Got to have it now. So Amazon used to be, you know, the two-day thing. And now it's Amazon next day. Now it's Amazon same day. Now it's Amazon two-hour prime, you know, you know what I'm talking about. And so uh, you want your instant coffee, but it's not instant enough, you know. You go to the gym, you know, you work out three times, and you can't believe you didn't lose 10 pounds. You, you know what I'm talking about. And so uh, you blog on relationships and wonder why do you still have conflict when you just blogged on it, you know. You can't sort of. So look at this graphic, okay. I believe this. Many of us think that spiritual growth should be this way. I believe, bam, Jesus Jr., And you think it's going to be like that. And so, and I'm here to tell you, you know what? That is not what a normal spiritual growth journey looks like. Okay? It's, it just takes a while to, to figure it out, you know? And so the growth, spiritual growth, <coughs> it's not on a straight line. So I want to encourage you this morning. Maybe you're going up and maybe you're going down. And maybe you're coming out of a valley. But that's what spiritual life is uh, is like. It's not on a straight trajectory. And so there are times where you you're uh, you're pursuing God and you're going after Him and all. And but then you have peaks. You have valleys. You have uh, seasons of stupidness. You know. You'll have you know the Holy Spirit's got to kind of beat on you and get you back on track here. And uh, and you're really not cultivating much in your heart toward God. And then there'll be other times were like, it's like, wow, you know, and there's a more kind of sanctified version of you there, but there's ups and downs. So this is what spiritual growth looks like. This is the reality of it. See, now look at that and you're on there, you're on there somewhere. I want you to think about where are you on that graph there? Because see, some of you, maybe you're feeling down, you know, and, uh, and there's grace for you 
Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. There's forgiveness there. Maybe you're starting the journey. And so uh, anyway, so all that to say this here, we've learned about who Jesus is, spirit working within us, who we were and who we are. And now we're going to talk about what that looks like in the home. We're going to talk about what that looks like. It's going to get up close and personal and uncomfortable. It's going to get uncomfortable. Because we're going to press on the wives. We're going to press on the husbands. We're going to press on the children. And we're going to press on the parents. Okay, it's called equal offending of everybody this morning here. So, the new life shows up. It shows up in the home. Okay, so God wants to speak to and revolutionize our relationships here. And some of you may have some objections. And I just want to say here that you got to trust God on this here. That God knows what he's talking about. And so our hearts are changed. Our homes are changed. Jesus changes everything here. And so we're going to first talk about marriage. We're going to talk about marriage at first here. And I just want to show you a little little, uh, uh, illustration here on the screens here. It says, behind every angry woman stands a man who has no idea what he did wrong. (laughs) Now that's funny. And, uh, And you know what he's saying to himself? He's saying the secret of a happy marriage remains a secret. He's trying to figure it out there. Okay, that's what a lot, that's what, that's the reality there. But in one simple statement, we're going to address the wives. One simple statement, we're going to address the husbands. We're going to address, uh, parents. We're going to address children here. Okay, so are you ready? Are you ready? It says wives. The S word. Submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. So, not a very popular subject today. Uh, not wildly popular in culture. Definitely not popular in the context of the marriage relationship. I believe it suffers image problems. And I believe that it is an incredibly positive concept when you understand it, it in its context. And I'm going to unpack that for you in just a few moments. But I do have to say that every time I speak on the S word, just in case I'm going to be hit with very much resistance, I keep my car running backstage just in case I need to make a quick exit. But if I say something that offends you, go ahead and email me, Sean Lynn at Sanctuary Church, and I'd be glad to answer all of your objections. A parallel passage says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submitting yourselves, watch this, now watch, don't miss this, one to another, one to another in the fear of God. So before he ever talks about why submit yourselves to your husbands, he speaks in the context of there's a mutual submission here before God here. And it says we're to submit to one another. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, it says that you are heirs together of the grace of God, equal before God here. And so kind of a sneak peek of the Greek, the Bible says, when it says here that uh, submit yourselves, the word is hupotasso in the original language. It means to place yourself under so that you can be protected. Uh, And so that's what it actually means here. It's not a forced relationship. Luke chapter 2, verse 51 speaks of Jesus there. And it says that he was subject or hupotasso to his parents. So watch this. Don't miss this. 
that the, that, that submission is in the context of imperfect people. The parents of Jesus were imperfect and, you know, how many would say he turned up okay, you know what I mean? So he submitted himself to them, imperfect people, okay, who would make imperfect decisions, but that was God's order for them. And so, uh, this is a hard attitude. Now notice it says to submit, there are limits here, to your own husband. You own that husband there. He is yours. And so submission is framed in the context of your own husband who then is loving you like Christ loved the church in this life-giving, loving uh, context here. So in your notes there, I have a couple words for the wives here. A couple words for the wives. Number one, God's word to you is this. Number one is to respect him. To respect. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, I'll tell you what that looks like. It looks like that there are ways that you disagree, that you relate to, and that you confront your husband. And then there's ways to disagree and con- ways to not to, to confront and to disagree with him. Now my wife, she has this down to a science, okay? So what she'll do is she'll begin to talk about the kids, you know, and their journey. And then she'll talk about me and my journey and my place in their journey. Starting to suggest things, you know, okay? Kind of confronting here. And so, and then what she'll do is say, you know, Ron, she'll say something like, you know, Ron, I'm really glad that things are going well at church. Really glad things are going well, you know, here. Rog, you know, with the kids here, I'm wondering maybe like if you plugged in a little bit more there, you know, that's actually, you know, like your first calling there. Got it, you know. And so, but see, secondly here, the word to the wise is, watch your mouth. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unpack that. Watch your mouth. Listen to me, ladies. If you don't hear anything, hear this. There is nothing that can damage and wound a man more than your mouth. The Bible puts it this way. There is life and death. Death in the power of your words here. And so the Bible, here, here's how serious this deal is. The Bible says on multiple occasions, okay, it's better for a man, watch this, to live on a roof than with a harmful mouth. It's very quiet in the building here. So process this. Process this with me. God is saying, sorry, bro. Sorry, bro, but considering the options, I'm putting you on the roof. Yeah, like where the vultures are and like where they'll eat your flesh. But but listen, it's a better option than the verbal beating that you're taking now. So go up to the roof. How many people know that's kind of serious? Uh, that's Proverbs 21.9 there. So let me just put it this way. I've never met a man. I've never met a man okay, that came that, that after church, like in here this morning. I'm going to get to the men. Okay? So I've never met a man, though, that, uh, that got chewed out on his, on his way home from church and said, Honey, that was so awesome. I just can't, I just can't wait to get home and do everything that Pastor Rod talked about today. Thank you. That just uh, that doesn't happen there. And so, ladies, may I have your permission to move on to the men? That wasn't very convincing. May I have your permission? Husbands, love your wives. Watch and never treat them harshly. So I thought about this. Watch. So I thought about this. He doesn't give him ten or twelve things to do. This is like a real simple tweet. Love your wives. Don't do the harsh thing. 
Really simple. And so, but what you need to get is this. And when this was written in this culture, okay, in this ancient world, this was, this was radical on steroids. In the Jewish law, what you need to understand here is that a woman was a possession. In that culture, a woman was a thing like a house or, 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 or livestock or goods, you know, and there was no, the man, you know, uh, had no legal boundaries. He could do anything he wanted relationally there with no social implications. So this is absolutely mind blowing in that culture for them to hear this. Ephesians, a parallel scripture says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and showed himself for it. Now watch this. The word that he uses here, it's a Greek word. And he uses a word they never used in that culture. They like, they hated the word. They, they would never use it in this context. And he says this, husbands, agape your wives, never treat them harshly. It was a word that was disdained in the culture there. It was unthinkable, unthinkable for husbands to love this way. Because now what he's saying is, is look, Love is not to be just this impulsive thing, this, but it's to be a matter of the will. It is to be, it is to be agape. It's, a, it's unselfish love. It knows no selfishness. It gives and it gives and it gives and it gives and it loves the person in spite of the person here. It's translated keep on loving and keep on loving here. It's a choice you make and it's a, it's a self-sacrifice. Agape, it's a, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's an inside job because you have no capacity whatsoever to ever do this on your own. So it's framed in, in, in that context there. So keep on loving in gentleness. Keep on loving in humility here. And the implication is this, watch, that submission that we all push back on, is tethered to agape. Think of that. Submission is tethered to the context of the self-sacrificing love here. So God's word to the husbands in your notes, okay? God's word to the husbands, love your wife. Think about this. In the end, in the end of your life, you will be measured by one thing. And you'll be measured by what you gave away. To give and to give. That's what you will be measured by when you're, when, you know, like Monopoly, everything goes into the box. When you go into the box and you will, you'll be measured by one thing, what you gave away. God says, husbands, you give your life away to your wife. So you know what this looks like? I want to talk about what this looks like. So, you know, sometimes uh, I'll counsel young guys that are getting married. You know what I tell them? One of the things that I tell them, and you're going to think I'm trying to be cute or funny, but I'm really not. I'll tell them this. I'll say, you know what? Uh, when it comes to driving the car, it says, you drive the beater. And a lot, a lot of them are shocked when I say, you drive the beater, you let them drive the nice car. You let them drive the beam or whatever. You drive the beater. And uh, I'm serious. And so uh, you're the lover that, lover so on. If you can afford two good cars, get them. But if you can't, you take the beater, she gets the beamer. And all the ladies said? Amen. Husbands, love your wives here, okay? So let me ask you this, husbands. When's the last time you gave up something for your wife? Let me ask you this, you know, uh, when's the last time you, know, you made a sacrifice for her? So God's word to husbands is this, okay? Five things, five ways to love here. We're going to get real practical. Love with your words, Love with your words. From the Song of Solomon, you read that the guy's like putting on a clinic. He's like a pro, you know, raving about his wife, encouraging all that she does here. And so he's, you know, given a steady diet of compliments, sincere compliments, speaking words of life over her there. Then secondly, love with your actions. 
befriending her, okay, providing, protecting, and serving, and all that. But you do all of that regardless of her, regardless, you know, and I'm going to talk more about this in just a bit. Okay, then love with your touch, the hugs, the holding hands, all that. And I recognize that some of us here, you know, maybe you're dating, maybe you've been in a bad, you know, relationship or marriage, or maybe, you know, uh, you're widowed or whatever. So I recognize that there's a broad continuum here, but it's good to be reminded of this. Then uh, you love by listening. See, if you're looking for a guy to marry, you want to marry somebody that's going to listen to you, that's going to show value to you, give a full attention to you. And then I hope you love the last one here. Love by romancing her. Now, some of you, you know, you're going to say, you know what? I get it. You know, I'm not prone to uh, creative dates. You know, I'm just sort of not wired up that way. I'm not given to poetry. You know, I'm not William Shakespeare Jr. But that's why God gave you Google. Come on, somebody. That's why God gave you an iPhone. Come on, somebody. Okay, so, so listen, you, you can, you can love your wife that way and you can steal all the good ideas from other people. I live in that world stealing every good idea I can get with no apology. So, love your wife. You know what? I want to tell you what it looks like. Say, what does it look like? Like, give me like, you know, flesh, give me an example. I'm going to give you an example of what it looks like. So it's a true story. I need you to picture it in your mind here. Dr. Robert Sizer wrote a book, The Notes in the Art of Surgery. The Notes in the Art of Surgery. And he tells him performing a surgery to remove a tumor. And uh, the young man's wife had a tumor on her, on her seventh cranial nerve, known as the facial nerve, which goes like this through the parotid gland and goes all over the face here. And so what happened was, is to remove the the tumor, he had to sever the seventh cranial nerve there. It left her permanently paralyzed, deformed, and twisted with, you know, the lips kind of drooped down and all that. So in his own words, and I quote, her young husband is in the room and the young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say it will. Because the nerve was cut, she nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her deformed and crooked mouth. And the doctor says, I can see how he, he's twisting his lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. That's agape right there. That regardless, you know, uh, the Bible says that God kissed a guilty world in love. That's what it looks like here. And then it says to never treat them harshly. Watch this. God is saying this. Look at God is saying, look, hey, bro, hey, bro, in this relationship, harsh never works. Like never works. God is saying, bro, 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 look, listen, if you play that game, you are playing a loser's game. Do you want to lose? Then play that game. But harsh never works in this relationship. So the Bible says you are never to be harsh with her. And when are we harsh? When are we harsh? We're harsh when we get impatient. 
that's when I would be tend tend toward harshness or you're focused on our shortcomings or you're full of maybe anger or disappointment or you're embittered about something or there are unmet expectations and then comes the harshness. So what does it look like not to be harsh in your notes? This is what it looks like. Number one, disagree, but disagree with grace. Disagree with grace. Uh, earlier this week, I think it was Monday, my wife and I, we had a disagreement. We had a disagreement. And we were driving to Costco, and we were in the car, and we were talking. And, uh, and I said, I told her what I said, and I said, I think that you're wrong. I think that you're wrong about that situation. And she said, well, I think that you're wrong. I didn't appreciate being told that I was wrong. But, um, but you know what? I thought, okay, I'm not going to make any progress here. It's over. You know, I'm just, okay. And so, uh, anyway, but I didn't have to have the last word. See, and that's one of the things we've got to have the last word, you know. We don't disagree with grace. We're grace receivers. Maybe we could be grace dispensers in this relationship here. And so uh, you disagree with grace. That also means you, you don't get aggressive verbally or emotionally or however else. But you don't get aggressive. And then secondly, learn to be gentle. Just learn to be gentle here. That's what it means not to be harsh. Because in the, in the end... In the end, God said, look, this is how a man is to love a woman and don't be harsh. And so I want you to notice in the next verse here, we're talking about children. I want you to notice here. The first he addressed husbands and wives. First he addresses that part of the relationship. Before he ever gets to children, he wants to make sure, okay, the wife's got to get this figured out. The husband's got to get this figured out. Now when you figure that out, let's get that straight. Now let's talk about kids. Verse 20. Children, always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Children, always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. So let me just say this, that the context here, okay, of the family, watch, the context is what? The parents were husband and wife here. I just want to point this out. But I understand that in culture today, that there are... uh, um, government-sponsored ads to redefine what is the family. I get that. Okay, I get that. I just want to point out to you that throughout history, okay, uh, it has always been, it has always been, in the Scripture, it has always been, in the conceived in the mind of God, it has always been male and female there. I'm just saying what the book says. Okay. Don't get mad. This is what it says here. And I get it that now, okay, we want to dismantle and dis deconstruct all of that. Okay. And then, and then redefine it. And then, and then we think that we're so smart. We think that we can, we can dismantle it from its uh, historical, godly, biblical moorings. We think we can dismantle that and there's not going to be any impact on culture. I beg to differ. If you just look at the smart people walking around in white jackets, Google it for yourself. Harvard University, Princeton University, Yale University shows that the new definitions of the family are not working. Just a thought. Okay, so we'll move on. So parents, now watch this. Children and parents are not on the same level. Watch. It doesn't say parents obey your children. You've met that family. Come on, you've met that family. 
It's a mess, okay? Okay, uh, where the kids just tell the parents what to do. And I get it. Every, every, every generation has its own fair, fair, favorite parenting book, you know, of the month club and all that. But the timeless wisdom of God, the timeless wisdom is children obey your parents. Ephesians says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. It's just, it's the right thing to do here. And so this, this is now, listen to me. The scriptures are nicely saying, look, you don't think you're an idiot, but you are. And that's why you need to obey your parents here. Say, this is the tweet of the passage. So now, why should parents obey, or why should children obey their parents? Number one in your notes. Because when you're young, you're dumb. I speak from personal experience. I was just not smart. I was just a terrorist. I was a terrorist in West Covina on Belmont and Broadway uh, Avenue. I was a I was a stinking terrorist. I was like a pre-Bin Laden, you know, terrorist type. And so I could have killed myself multiple times there. And so what it's saying here is, why do you obey? Why do you obey? Because you're just an idiot. When you're a little kid, you're a moron, okay? And uh, children are going to self-destruct. They're foolish. This is why, think about it, you know, uh, this is why uh, they got to, you know, uh, you know, what do they, what do kids go after? They want to undo the bleach there. So they got to make the special caps on the bleach because kids are morons. They're going to drink it. Okay. It's just true. And so, and when you're a teenager, you're still under your parents to help save you from the greatest repercussions of youth. They're there to save you from the greatest repercussions that you could carry with your entire life. So I get it. Some kids, you know, they're born with a bent toward rebellion. You know, uh, I think one of our kids, when he was two years old, we caught him in his room, and he had one of those uh, parenting books, and he was ripping out the chapter on strong-willed children. He was, just, he was ripping. That didn't really happen, but I, but I knew that would get your attention. And so... Imagine if we took this, carried this out into the animal kingdom, just for a moment here. If uh, teenagers had the attitudes like, like maybe in the animal kingdom. So think of a teenager, uh, a teenage antelope on the plains there of Africa. And, uh, and there, the teenager thinks that he knows it all, right? The antelope knows it all. Says, Mom, Dad, I'm going to do my own thing. Uh, I don't think you're telling me straight about the lions. I think I'm faster than the lion. And, uh, and I would say, well, son, I, I beg to differ with you. I've actually, I've lived a long time. I've seen, you know, uh, National Geographic and all there. And and so, uh, uh, and so there, you know, the next week or whatever, there's a son taunting the lion. And I say to my teenage antelope son, son, you know, this is the time where we bolt. This is the time where we bolt. No, dad, I know what I'm doing. I can outrun the lion. I'm saying, hey, look, my job is to keep you off the cover of National Geographic. Time to bolt, you know. And so, but, but teenagers can think, yeah, no way. I've got this here, you know. But see, this is how God designed it to be to obey. In your notes, the measure of obedience is always, always to obey. Now, Okay, when you're, when you're no longer a child, when you're no longer under your parents' roof, okay, that doesn't then, it's not always obey then, but you still honor forever your mother and father, okay, you still honor them, okay? So obey your parents, okay? It says, for this is right. Obey your parents, for this is right, even if they're not right. Obey your parents who are imperfect, but obey, because it'll go well with you. 
Do you want to go well with you? And so now a couple of things about obedience. We'll wrap this up. Obedience is not I'm counting. How many of you know what I'm talking about? One, two, 1,470. Don't make me do it, Johnny. 1,477 and a half. You're pushed. Obedience is not I'm counting. Obedience is not bribing. Time to go to bed. Well, what do I get? Do I get ice cream? Do I get cookie? No, you get to live. You get to live. That's what you get to do. Go to bed. So parenting's like gardening, you know, a lot of weeding, you know, a lot of sweat, a lot of toil, not a lot of fruit at first, you know, uh, a lot of miracle grow, you know, a lot of sweat and labor and blood. But then in another season, the fruit comes, baby. So every parent, I encourage you, hang in there. Don't give up. Do your best. You know, just hang on for the ride. Lastly, verse 21, fathers, fathers, do not aggravate or provoke your children or they'll become discouraged. Oh, I think every parent, listen to me. I think every parent, if you were honest, you would admit that you're discouraged. I just want to tell you, I get, over my season of parenting, yeah, I, I get discouraged. And you know what? We all have a story. We've all had a moment with kids. Now watch, okay? We want to tell the stories about super parent, you know, because make, you know, kind of, Props up your image, makes you look better, better, maybe, you know, protect the kids or protect you. But we, then we have the real stories. And, um, I have those stories. Like you do. And there are painful moments that we don't want to admit. And so, but we all want to act like the perfect parent on Facebook and all that, and Instagram. And so God says, you know what? I, I got to talk to the dads here. He says, don't aggravate your kids. And this is what it means to demoralize, to lose morale, to become disheartened to the point of losing motivation and to feel like giving up. And that's for everybody. I want to give you in closing five ways you aggravate children. Number one, making more withdrawals through criticism than deposits through encouragement. See, correction is, with, is withdrawal. But if you just correct, 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 correct. I have a family member. All it is is correct, correct. And the kid's going crazy. The kid has absolutely had it. You know, we're wondering, should we, the kid may end up living with us. We're, we're having discussions about, about this here. Correct. Constant fight, fault finding, fault finding. And, and never hearing about when he does something right here. And so you do that and you'll aggravate the kids. Okay, so you got to balance correction with, hey, you're doing a great job. I love how you did that. That was awesome. You rocked that. And you got to encourage them too. Secondly, you aggravate kids by unreasonable expectations. Okay, this is, watch. This is expectations beyond their ability. It's beyond their ability. They're maybe not a 4.7 student. They're not Olympic athletes. You got to recognize how are they wired up. They're not attended everything. They're attended something. So when I was in school, my dad did one of the great, gave me one of the greatest gifts he could ever give me. Because I told him, Dad, man, it's so hard in college. These kids are so smart, Dad. I don't know if I can get an A. The kid, I had kids in my class. They were so smart. Uh, Kenny Itsuzui went to Harvard Medical School. And... Uh, um, uh, Lauren, uh, Neil Lauren, so smart, 19 years old, went to UCLA Medical School, perfect SAT scores. I could walk into the room 
on the first day and go, A, A, A. No. And there were times I'd walk right out of the classroom and I would, because I knew I can't get an A. So I said, Dad, Dad, I, I, you know, I'm doing my best. And he said this. He says, Rod, all I ask of you is just do your best. Rod, you do your best and I'll be proud of you. Just do your best. If your best is a C, I'll be proud of you. Or B, I'll be proud. And that's what you need to build into the kids. You can't hold them. You cannot hold them okay, to expectations that are unreasonable. And you do them great damage. I was a, I was a, uh, a soccer manager and coach for many years. I listened to all the, all the dads screaming, Miho, to, you know, do things. And they all want to be professional soccer players. And they weren't all that good. They were good, but they weren't that good. Unrealistic expectations. Number three. Excessive rules with little or no relationship. Uh, that says it all. It'll just lead to rebellion. Just lead to rebellion here. Number four is watch your mouth. Okay, watch your mouth. Power, how powerful is your mouth when it comes to your children? You can't threaten them or intimidate them. You, you know, uh, you, you got to build them up there. You know, I hear dads sometimes, you know, publicly shame their, their kids or even in front of me. It's like, don't ever, don't ever do that, you know. Always correct in private and praise in public. And lastly, is to show favoritism. That'll provoke, that'll discourage. You know what one study showed? 70% of, mo- of mothers, the one study, show favoritism. Admitted to favoritism toward a child. And you know, it's one of the most damaging things we could do. I grew up in this family. Well, there was favoritism. And I was a favored one. And you know what? To this day, to this day, my sister is damaged from that relation, from what happened. To this very day, still damaged. And, uh, uh, and for 10 years, she didn't speak to me. 10 years, we never spoke because of this very thing. Fathers, says, do not, do not exasperate or aggravate your children because the implications are for their life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words, which are a light unto our path and a, and a lamp unto our feet. And Father, I pray for those that maybe are not married or have difficult marriages. You would sustain them. Father, I pray for wives that they could respect for husbands, could love and nurture and not be harsh. For those that are dating, Father, I pray that we would not live under the weight of past failed relationships as everyone in the room has failed. Father, I pray that we keep coming back to your grace and as we sang earlier, that we need you. Help us for parents. I pray that you would help us to love our children, not to get brutal with them or we aggravate them. For every parent, Father, I pray for your help, for your grace. They would know that they're not alone. And lastly, for fathers, I pray for your grace, for encouragement, for a lot of joy, a lot of memories, a lot of fun. I pray for children that you'd help them to obey and that your heart would be pleased. So we pray that you would do this, and you would do more. In Jesus' name, amen.